And I want to begin with a concept just to launch us off in the right mindset. Remember, uh, we can get really caught up into the minutia of this book and really caught up in the mystery and what's this mean and what about this date and what about this number. So I'm going to keep bringing us back to the large overarching principles. The main principle I want you to understand today is going to be the fill in the blank in front of you. Because remember, the book of Revelation is trying to show us reality as it truly is, not what we observe. So Jesus rips the curtain back, which is that concept of revelation, taking the lid off, pulls the curtain back and shows us what's really going on. Um, If you remember, Peter was doing really excellent walking on water, doing the impossible until he began to look at his current situation, which was, oh my gosh, I can't really do this. I can't walk on water. That's an impossibility. He looked at the waves and he began to sink. In this difficult time, for us, maybe as a church, in this difficult recession time and and the financial issues going on and the unemployment in our homes, a lot of times we'll look at the current situation and wonder whether or not Jesus is on the throne. Um, It was much more extreme for the early church that John wrote to, and they wondered as they were being persecuted. Emperor Domitian, during this time, had just killed 40,000 Christians. At a time when it was so brutal and there was such a slaughter and bloodshed, they must have wondered whether or not Jesus was still on the throne. So he decided to rip the curtain back and go, yeah, look, you want to see? I'll show you heaven. I'll show you exactly where I stand. I can tell you who I am. I can reveal to you what I'm like. And that should change what you think. So therefore, the fill in the blank in front of us is an encouragement and a hope that comes from the book of Revelation. And it's simply this. God is infinitely near his children in both peaceful times and suffering. God is infinitely near his children in both peaceful times and suffering. We're so quick to say, oh, God is here when everything is going awesome. And when things are going terrible, we say, where is he? Do you really think that he moves like that? That he moves based on your perspective of a situation, my perspective of a situation? Absolutely not. He is infinitely near us, both in good times and in bad, or peaceful times and in suffering. Would you turn with me to the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, page 867, for those of you that had a Bible handed to you. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, because we went so far last time. Okay, now we're going to try to go a little further today. We're going to try to finish out the chapter. So we're not just going to do three verses a week. That would be a long series. So we are going to kind of dive through a little bit more. Unfortunately, the more material I go through, the faster I'm going to have to talk. So I'm going to talk very rapidly. If you're taking notes, I will drive you insane. But I still want you to try. And as you, as we go through, I'm going to keep stopping like every other word and explaining things to you. And it's going to sound a bit disjointed. So let me just give you the gist. In this passage, we're going to see John introduced. He's going to talk about why he's writing this, that there's going to be seven letters to seven churches. And then he's going to see Jesus in a brand new way. Remember, this is John. This is Jesus' best friend. Um, when he was on earth during that three-year ministry, it's possible that they were cousins. And if so, then they even knew each other likely growing up. But now he doesn't even recognize him because a glorified Christ is unlike anything he's ever seen. The only glimpse he's ever seen of a glorified Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. But now he sees standing before him and hears voice from this being who doesn't even look like the Jesus that he knew. 
because he is powerfully packed with images. So as we begin, that's all we're going to talk about today. It's not going to get any more dramatic or different than that. It's very understandable. So let's dive into it. But before we ever read scripture, what do we always do? We pray for the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes and Holy Spirit, would you illuminate scripture to us that we might understand, that we might be able to see these things and Lord, that it would truly be a revealing, not a mystery, not only hidden, but just as you said in your word that you let your kids know what you're doing, that it's not just about us being servants, but we are family to you and you have given us secrets and understandings about our present and about our future. May we take the information that we learn today and not just become prideful in it, but be able to use it, be transformed by it, and share it with the world. Would you change us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. And just to give you a little quick insight on how I do my teaching today, it's going to look um, like I'm walking around and I just have my Bible and I have no notes. When I pass by my lectern, I'm cheating. I'm looking back and I'm reading my notes and then I will move on. So do not appear, it does not seem like I have everything memorized and it's magical. It's not. It's right there. So I just thought I'd let you know. All right, can we move on? Here we go. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. I'll just read the first three verses or so, and then we'll go back and tear it apart. It sounds like this. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, and they are named later, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and father to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So it shall be. Amen. Well, a couple things we have to unpack in order to understand this. You would look and you go, well, Lance, you actually don't need to take too long. I understood that part. All right, maybe. Maybe you did. I thought I understood it until I began to do a little bit more research. And so let me give you a little bit more that would help it become even more clear. John, we already talked about, and we had talked about him way too long last time, right? So we don't have to get into that. That's the disciple. That's the apostle, uh, Jesus' closest friend, the beloved disciple. Well, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, we already have two problems. What's the province of Asia, and who are the seven churches? So we begin with the first. Let's start with the easiest what is the province of Asia? When we look at a map, we have seven continents, one of which, and some people say there's six continents, we're calling Europe and Asia one, Eurasia. But in general, we have seven continents, large land masses around the world. And we look at Asia and it's the biggest one. It's enormous. And so it would seem rather silly and kind of stupid to say there are seven churches of Asia when you only pick one little tiny piece of it way over on the left on the map and say that's representing Asia. Problem, they're not talking about the Asia we're looking at. 
This is a different Asia. This is what was the old ancient kingdom of Pergamum taken by the Romans in 133 B.C. So prior to this, a couple hundred years, the Romans took over a territory of this kingdom. Now you're going to hear about the city of Pergamum, but this was a territory. What we now know as Turkey. So, whenever you hear the province of Asia or the churches of Asia, please do not think all of Asia, just think Turkey. That's it. There's Greece on one side of the Aegean Sea, Turkey's on the other. It's only Turkey. That's why you would say, oh yeah, these are representative of the whole province of Asia. It means the Roman province of Asia. So first of all, let's get our geography right. Now, as a matter of fact, um, Christopher, there's a, there's a map there. Let's take a look at it real fast. This is kind of how it looks. Now, um, in many respects, it, it, it also, the map kind of stretches it out. It almost creates a circle. Sardis is a little off base there, but it almost creates a circle. John's going to be exiled into the island of Patmos, so Chris, you can leave this slide up for a little bit. But you'll notice these seven churches. So we ans- ask the next question, why seven? Why seven churches? Okay, there's a lot of debate as to why there's seven churches, and a lot of it depends on how you're viewing this book. Well, for me, I actually have five options for you. You ready? Because everybody's got choices. They all have ideas they think is right, so why seven churches? There were more churches than this going on. As a matter of fact, in this region, there were named churches that we know about in Scripture that were just as significant as these guys. So why seven? They're not the only churches. Why these seven? Why seven at all? Here are your options. Number one, there were seven groups of churches in this province of Asia of which these are representative. That's your first option. Groupings, these are representatives. Number two, it's the circular road of the wealthiest cities in the province. Number three, it is the actual postal route, which is a lot of evidence. This is the postal route through Asia. When you would pull in at Ephesus, one of the docks near Ephesus, you would start there and it actually goes clockwise around to do the actual postal route. So it makes sense if you're going to drop off letters that you would hit the seven churches on the postal route. Number four, they're symbolic only. Seven is a number of completeness. You're going to hear seven mentioned over and over and over and over and over in Scripture. And actually, these seven really don't matter. It's representative of all churches worldwide. And some people would even go as far as to say they represent seven churches throughout church history. I disagree. That's the only one I'll tell you I'll disagree with. I think they are literal churches. But there are seven in the number of completeness, and they stand for all the churches in the province. Number five, and the one that I think has the most weight to it because of the thrust of the book, is that it's rather interesting that John writes under persecution. He's being persecuted by the Roman Empire for one particular reason. So are all the other Christians. They will not worship the emperor. The imperial cult is what it was called. The emperor worship. They demanded that once a year, and this did not happen until Domitian, Once a year, every Roman citizen and subjected person under the Roman Empire had to take a pinch of incense in one of the temples and say, Caesar is curios, which means what? Caesar is Lord, and throw it in the fire. 
you had to do an honor and a worship of Caesar, the Christians wouldn't do it. That's why they were persecuted. That was the primary reason. It was a clash with the emperor's religion, the imperial cult. It's fascinating that these seven cities all are known for emperor worship, and they all had temples for the imperial cult. It is very likely they were getting the most heat because they were the very centers of imperial worship. And that's why John got those letters from Jesus Christ to talk with them, because they were going to get hit harder than everybody else. Okay? Does that make sense? Those are some options. You can pick one of those. Which one do I think it is? I already showed and tipped my hand on that one, but you can pick any one of those and you can argue with me. All right? That's fine. We move on. It says this, grace and peace to you. And we just kind of move on. What is grace and peace to you? That is a mixture of a Hellenistic greeting, a Greek greeting, and a Hebrew greeting. The Hellenistic or Greek greeting is peace. Peace is kind of their, their concept they really dug into. Why do we have grace? Why, what is grace all about? It is the undeserved favor of God. So God extends favor to you when, in fact, he should just smash you for what we have done against him, right? But he gives you grace. So Paul, when he wrote his letters, he started with this every time. These are exactly like the letters of Paul. He starts out grace and peace to you. Grace is the Greek side. Peace is the Hebrew side. What is the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. That is the deep settled safety or the deep settled comfort or the deep settled peace that comes upon you when you know that God is in control. When he has extended grace to you, the peace then showers over you. Does that make sense? That's why he started with that. Grace and peace to you. It's a rather powerful intro. Grace and peace to you from what? From him who is and who was and who is to come. You're all familiar with this title. It is explained a little long here, but in general, we know it very simply as Yahweh. Right? I am. When we first hear this, we hear it in what story? On Mount Sinai, well, I shouldn't say Mount Sinai, we're out in the desert, we're at the burning bush. You guys remember that story? Moses is talking to a plant, okay? Now, God happens to be hiding in the plant, and he is speaking out of the plant, but he's talking to a plant, and he says, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to go stand up against Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him to let my people go, and I want you to be my representative. Well, when I go, who should I say is sending me? You mean, what is my name? Yeah. Just say, I am that I am. Well, what's that supposed to mean, right? It's the idea that I'm the self-existent one. In other words, if I really tried to describe it to you, it would blow your head off. So, all I'm going to tell you is I am. Let's stick with that. That is the name he said to Moses to be, I want to be known by from generation to generation. If you want to know my personal name and you want to call me something, call me Yahweh. I am. Well, this is the long version of that. Who is, who was, and who is to come. It's a little bit longer. So we're talking about God, certainly the God of the Old Testament. So he said, grace and peace to you from Yahweh. And from the seven what? Spirits. What's that mean? Nobody knows. We've now run into our first mystery that nobody has any idea what it means. Now, we have, guess what? Options. 
right? I always provide you with options. What are the seven spirits of God? They're going to be referred to again. And they say that they're the seven spirits of God that come before the throne of God. What does that mean? What do they stand for? Once again, we have seven. So it may well be symbolic, okay? Now, it's interesting. If you have an NIV study Bible, you look over in your little side notes. It will give you a different translation. It will say, or sevenfold spirit. If you look over there. So the first guess is the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we just talked about God the Father. We're just about to talk about God the Son. So who are we missing? The Holy Spirit. Is he right in the middle of those two? Is the seven spirits of God the full completed number of the total spirit of God, meaning the Holy Spirit? Many commentators, many scholars believe that that is so. The other half disagree. All right? So, is it really the Holy Spirit? I don't know. It kind of fits well. The only problem is, is that later on, you're going to see it do those spirits do stuff that you wouldn't normally assume the Holy Spirit would do. And it kind of falls apart. Um, so, our second guess is that there are literally seven spiritual beings that minister before the throne of God. You go, why would they do that? Because there's a lot of weird beings in the throne room. Right? You remember, we're going to start reading about all these. How many of you had an opportunity to read through the book of Revelation since we started? Could you raise your hand? Okay, quite a few of you. Um, On the other two services, I challenged everyone to do a full reading in one setting. So I would challenge you to do the same thing. It takes about an hour to go through it. If you read it out loud and you don't read super fast. Okay? It'll take you about an hour to get through the book. But I encourage you to do so. Anyway, as we go through, you're going to see there's beings that have all these heads and then there's eyes covering them and they got multiple wings. And then you've always learned in the Old Testament, there's seraphim and they're weird looking. There's cherubim. They're weird looking. There's all kinds of bizarre spirits moving about. So what's seven more that minister before God? You go, okay, maybe they're just literal beings. Your last option is that they are the Metaphor way of saying the all-knowing spirit of God. Why would we say that? Because it's almost the exact same language as referred to in the Old Testament, which is called the seven eyes of God that range through the earth. So you start thinking, okay, when it talks about the spirit of God, it talks about him knowing all things and being omniscient. Is that what it means? Okay. Do we really need to argue over it? No, probably not. We just kind of move on. But we start out, it says, from him who is, who was, and who is to come, from the seven spirits of God before his throne, and what? From Jesus Christ. Oh, good. We know him. Right? So that makes it easier. And we know him. That's his first and last name, right? Okay. From Jesus Christ. Who is the, and it gives him three titles. The faithful what? Witness. What is the Greek word for witness? Martis. Where do we get the word martyr? A martyr is a perfect witness because a greater man has no gift than to give his own life. In other words, if you have a cause that you believe in, there's no better exclamation point than to die for it. You don't have to be a Christian to be a martyr. Do you understand? There's martyrs for anyone that's adhering to any certain belief and will die for it. That's a martyr. Do we have martyrs in this world still to this day? Yeah. Do we have people martyring themselves for stupid things? Yes, we do. But there are martyrs all over the world. But this is referring specifically to saying Jesus was the ultimate role model 
as a testimony to the truth. Jesus went all the way to the wall and died for the sins of the world. He is the faithful witness to a bunch of churches who are about to be persecuted like you wouldn't believe. What a wonderful role model. Jesus said, I've been there. I've already done that. And I stood strong and I need you to follow my example and do as I have done. He is the faithful witness. He is also what? It says, the firstborn from the dead. Was Jesus the first person to ever be resurrected from the dead? No. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament has a ton of stories of people that got raised from the dead, right? And when Jesus was here, he was raising people from the dead. Lazarus is ahead of him in line, right? Because he raised Lazarus. Then he got raised. So he is not the firstborn from the dead in the sense that he's the first guy that was brought back from the dead. The only difference is all the rest of them died again. Okay. Remember, the only thing worse than dying once is dying twice. Okay. I'm not so sure that was a great benefit to those folks to come back and then do it all over again. So Jesus, when he rose again, it was drastically different. And in the Bible, when it says firstborn of, it means preeminent one, the one where everything focuses, the most important one. So out of all those that have been raised from the dead, this is the key one, the main one, that when Jesus rose from the dead, it changed nature and supernature. It changed this life and the afterlife. It did so much dramatic change that that great altering made him the firstborn of the dead. And his third title is, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. If you remember back when Israel had uh, the David and Goliath story, he became a king, became their best king. God gave him a promise called the Davidic covenant. And he said, I am going to establish your throne forever. And it was referring to the Messiah that would come through his line. That is Jesus. And that kingdom that will last forever is Jesus himself. He would be the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. So these three titles are thrown out, and this is all in the greeting. To him who loves us. Why did he do all this? Because he loves us. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Do you believe that? Do you live that way? And has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. Well, now that's a super irritating line to Jews. Why? You take an Orthodox Jew and you read that to him and you realize that this is being written out not only to Jews but to Gentiles. It's highly offensive. Why? Because that's their special title. They were to be the kingdom of God. They were to be the priests of God on this earth. They were the chosen people. Don't mess with my title. I'm the chosen people of God, the Jews would say. Nobody else. This is our family. We had to go through the pain. We had to go through the persecution. We're the ones hurting for this. We get the title. Don't take it away from us. That is special to us. We are the kingdom and the priests. How do they know that? Because God said it very clearly. You will be a kingdom and priest for me on this earth. I will be your God. You will be my people. It was very specific. But all of a sudden, it's being written to Gentiles. It gets worse when Peter gets a hold of it. Listen to this. 2 Peter 2.3. If you want to turn there, it's page 860 in the Bible's handed to you, but it's New Testament. Listen to this. As you come to him... 
Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter starts using inner Gentiles. How irritating is that to the Jewish people? That's called grafted in. We got to join in on the family of God. Frustrating to the Jews? Yes. However, we're now part of the family. We got adopted in. We did not replace the Jewish people. We joined in on their family. Now, what's amazing about that is we now get these special titles, just like every child that gets adopted into a family gets some new stuff and being part of that family, a new identity. We are called a kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? It's the place where he rules. So for believers, for Christians, for Jews that know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, this family of God, it is supposed to be done here on earth as it is in heaven, that is the kingdom of God. We are also called priests. What do priests do? They serve God and they communicate his will and desires to man. What is our job as the church? What is our job now these days is to communicate God's word to the world. We are the priests of God. That is what he's referring to. Now, look, it says... Oh, I skipped one. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. You know what that means. Look, it says, you're going to hear that phrase a lot. As a matter of fact, I'll give you some, uh, t- some numbers here in a second. But when he says look, it means part of your problem is you're not looking right. You're afraid because you're not looking. So look, he is coming. He is near. Look, it says, he is coming with the clouds. Now this time, it's talking about being with the clouds. It doesn't mean that he's riding the clouds or he's rolling over his car. That's, that's not what it's talking about. Not, at least not here, right? But it says he's coming with the clouds. Clouds are kind of important in the Old Testament. Why are they important? Because they signify the presence of God. You go, what do you mean? When Moses met in the tabernacle with God, how did he know that God was there? Cloud descended. When the temple was filled with God, how did they know? It's filled with a cloud. When the children of Israel were going through the desert, they had a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. The clouds have always been a designation of the presence of God. On Mount Sinai, when God met with Moses, it was surrounded by thick billowy smoke and clouds. When Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, the clouds were there. You're going to keep seeing clouds. So it says, look, he comes with the clouds and every eye shall see him. So whatever this is referring to, it cannot be some secret rapture. You understand? Because every eye will see him. So whatever this particular verse is referring to, it's not the secret left behind thing. 
This is when everyone will see Jesus in all of his glory, even those who pierced him. What does that mean? Who pierced him? Well, remember, the Jews handed him over to the Romans, and the Romans pierced him in two different ways. Not only crucifixion, being pierced through his hands and feet, but also in order to check and see if he was dead. Do you remember the jabbing with the spear and the blood and water poured out of his side? That is the one that was pierced. Why are they mourning? It says, and those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. I thought Jesus was a good thing. Why is everybody crying because of him? Well, if you're a good if you're a believer, then you're going to probably mourn over the sin that you were the one that caused him to be pierced. I think there's a certain amount and a certain degree where you're going to say the Jews didn't kill him, the Romans didn't kill him, I killed him. It was my sin that put him on the cross. Don't try to blame it on somebody else. It's our sin. He would have had to go to the cross if it was just you that lived here. Just me that lived here. He would have to die for us. So our sin put him on the cross. In that way, we would mourn. But the non-believers will mourn for a totally different reason. Now they know he's the big dog. Now they know they have not followed him. Now they know that they are on the opposite side and it's about to go to wartime. So they are going to go to judgment and they're mourning for a whole other reason. It moves on. Jesus begins to talk. How do we know? Because it's written in red. <laughs> I always think that's kind of funny. By the way, that's not inspired, just to let you guys know. Uh, That was kind of added in later with colored ink. So here we go. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, and it always stands for everything in between. It means I am the total beginning and the total end. I am what everything is all about. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. That is a pretty darn clear view of Jesus being God, yeah? All right, yeah, you're going to keep hearing these types of references. The word almighty is an interesting word because in the Old Testament it's used everywhere. It's constant. Almighty, 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 almighty. And it always refers to God the Father in their opinion. Now all of a sudden Jesus shows up and almighty is used. In the New Testament it's only used 12 times. Nine of the 12 is in Revelation. And it keeps referring up to Jesus. So it's an interesting tie-in of Jesus being God. I, John, he says, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What a perfect authority to write this letter. Hey, I'm persecuted right now. I have a letter about you being persecuted tomorrow. I know what you're going through. I've suffered it. All my buddies and all my family are dead. There you go. I've seen pain. I've seen suffering. I am merely one just like you. I may have been the best friend of Jesus. That doesn't mean my life has gone real easy. So I need to let you know I'm going through suffering. I'm going through persecution and I'm trying to be as patient as possible. The whole reason I'm on this rocky island of Patmos is because I stepped up and said no. So now I'm out on this Roman penal colony, which is a rock quarry. And I'm sitting out here as a man either in my 70s or in my 90s, depending on when you believe he walked with Jesus. And I'm out here for a long time. I'm writing you a letter. I'm suffering just like you are. So I'm your companion. I understand you, right? 
Now, we know from other writings, John didn't know this when he wrote, but we know from other writings that about two, three years later, he was released under Emperor Nerva and able to return back to his home in Ephesus. He actually got off the rock quarry. But at that time, he just figured he would die there. He says, on the Lord's day, what day is that? Sunday. This is one of the first instances in ancient literature, in Christian ancient literature, that it's referred to as the technical term for Sunday. The Lord's Day. That was a big dramatic change. Do you remember when the church first launched, they were all Jews, right? So they're pretty focused on the Sabbath. All of a sudden, their worship day shifted from Saturday to Sunday, and they began to meet on Sunday. Why? What significant event happened on a Sunday morning? The resurrection changed everything. So now we have the Lord's Day. He's mentioning out the specific day of the week as on Sunday, meaning I know you guys were all having church, but I'm out here on a rock island, so I'm out having my own little church by myself. On the Lord's Day, I was probably out in prayer, but it says, I was in the Spirit. Some people say that just means worship. Paul and Peter use the exact same phrase, and they refer to something more than just worshiping. In the spirit is being caught up and seeing reality shift right in front of you. What we would call, and I know this is going to sound negative, so I need you to be a little bit mature with me on this one. A trance is really what they're referring to. A trance and the idea that you're awake, you're alert, your faculties are all there, you're not in a dream state, and immediately your world around you changes. And you begin to see movement in front, behind, and you're in a complete 4D world. Your whole world just changed around you. It's a vastly bizarre experience. That's why they would mention it. And just go, I don't know what's going on, I was in the spirit, I can't describe it, but everything went weird. And now I'm trying to let you know what I saw. And I heard behind me, meaning he literally had to turn around, not like a dream where things just fly in front of you and you don't have to do anything. He had to move and look in direction. I had to look behind me. I heard a voice. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Heard a voice like a trumpet. That was a common way that Moses used to describe God's voice on Mount Sinai. The voice of God sounds like a trumpet. What is significant about a trumpet in Hebrew life? It was a call to assemble or a call to war. When they would blow the horn, everybody knew something important was coming. God's voice pounded out like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see. In other words, I'm not here to have you write some fancy little story. Write what you see. Be very honest about it. Write what you see and send it to the seven churches. Now he names them. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I've had an opportunity to go over and travel in Turkey and go to four out of those seven cities. I didn't get a chance to make it to the other three. Not all of them have archaeological sites, but it's fascinating to be over there. We will study each one of those cities in their letter. So we're not going to go into it right now. I turned around, he said, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw what? Seven golden lampstands. Now, this is not a one lampstand with seven lights. This is seven separate golden lampstands. Okay? 
I saw seven golden lampstands. He tells you at the end what those are. What are they? The seven churches. Okay, so you got seven churches, seven golden lampstands. It's imagery. It shows it to you. I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Now, even though that can be a simple way of saying, I saw a human being, he just used a loaded term. All the Jews knew Daniel. And when you talk about Daniel, we see a loaded term, the son of man, right? That is when Daniel saw this, it blew his mind. So now John goes, I looked and I saw this messianic figure. I saw the son of man. He says 40 times in the book of Revelation, I saw 32 times I heard. The book of Revelation is about hearing and seeing differently. He's hearing and seeing and it changed his life. Are we hearing and seeing? I heard and I saw someone like the son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. Two people in the Hebrew culture wore robes. That was kings and priests. The one that would wear the full length robe all the way to the ground was the high priest. So now we have Jesus acting in the priestly function. And I saw a robe that reached down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. It's been said by many commentators that when you work, your belt is around your waist. When you are done and completed in action, you are finished, you put it around your chest. The idea is that the sash is an honor of a completed work. The high priest had one of those. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. By the way, when Daniel saw the Ancient of Days, he looked just like this. So either Jesus looks just like his dad, or they're both God. That'd be weird, huh? His hair was white as snow. That always means honor and dignity, wisdom. Okay? Um, and his eyes were like blazing what? Fire. Penetrating and purifying. God sees everything. I always think it's funny when people go, do you think at the end God's going to like look at everything that I did? I just laugh. I'm like, you need to worry now. Because yeah. <laughs> he's been looking at it the whole time. It's not going to be later. What are you talking about? His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. What do we know about bronze? It's tough metal. What was the problem with Daniel's vision of the statue when it collapsed? Its feet were partly made of clay. And the foundation of the statue could not handle and it fell over and destroyed everything. His feet are strong. He is steadfast. And his feet are glowing, meaning he's been through the fire. He's purified, he's tested, and he's solid. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. That's the same words that Ezekiel used to describe the voice of God. So now Jesus is talking, and he sounds exactly like the voice of God. This is what you'd think of as a waterfall. Have you ever been around a waterfall that's pummeling so hard you have to yell to the person next to you? That's the concept. It's that strength sound. In his right hand, that's the hand of authority and power, he held seven stars, which we're going to find out what those mean in a moment. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. Boy, that's awkward. <laughs> we always have that picture and we go, bleh, he's just got this sword sticking out of his mouth. It's kind of like hard to talk. You talk with a lisp. It's really awkward, right? 
Makes it much easier to eat. You don't have to cut up your food. It just kind of just cuts where it goes right in. Why does Jesus have a sword coming out of his mouth? Do you all understand that this is a super obvious one? Jesus, John said in his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you have the word of God personified in Jesus, and then you have the author of Hebrews say that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, now you have the sword coming out of the sword. Do we all understand that this is the word of God? Everything he speaks, everything he says is the very word of God, and it is able to divide bone and marrow and discern thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It is the whole idea that what Jesus said is real. That's all it is. It's just an image. Why are we using images? Because they power pack thoughts and feelings in them. Have you ever looked through one of those Time Magazine collections of famous photos? Every photo you look at tells a story. More than just if I said, and the Vietnam War was hard. That doesn't say anything. If you see images of people and what they have gone through, you get more of the story. Why would God use imagery? Partly because we wouldn't understand the reality of it. He's talking baby talk to us, but partly because he's trying to convey emotion. John doesn't want to mess that up, so when he gets to pick to use descriptive words on what it looked like, he uses imagery because he doesn't fully get it himself, and he's trying to convey what he felt and what he thought. So we move on. It says this. uh, Out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Last time we saw that description, John was there. That was the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus began to glow. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's what I would do. Right? He's in good company because Ezekiel did it, Daniel did it, Daniel did it twice. We even have a bunch of people falling at the wrong time for the wrong things. John will fall down in front of angels and they're like, man, come on, get up. All right? I mean, you're falling down. You are in the presence of absolute power. He just falls down as though dead. And what did Jesus do? Did Jesus bark at him? Did Jesus humiliate him? What did Jesus do? It says, then he placed his right hand on me. That's for comfort, consolation, power, and commissioning. He placed his right hand on me and says, do not be afraid. Why should John not be afraid? Because Jesus said, I'm about to tell you what I'm like. When you know what I'm like, you got nothing to worry about. You want to know what I'm like, John? I'll write a whole book about what I'm like. I'll write a whole book about what I'm going to do. I don't want you to be afraid anymore. I don't want you to worry. I don't want you to fret. I don't want you to be scared. I don't want you to think, what is my future going to be like? I want you to be at peace, and I want you to see me as I am. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I started everything. I'll shut down everything. For all things were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. 
In other words, John, you're so afraid of death. You're so afraid of all these things. I got the keys right here. I have control. You're fine. You're mine. This shouldn't scare you. I made sure that I have control of the afterlife at all times. So whatever you're afraid of, I'm in control. Let it go. We're okay. Hades is the, um, uh, another word for the grave or the dead. Um, I see it, Hades, as the negative side of death, what the Hebrews call um, Sheol, or um, I don't really want to get into it too much right now because of time, but the idea is um, whatever's in the grave you don't have to worry about. The second death can't hurt you. So he says as he closes, Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, And by the way, let me explain some of the mystery. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. In other words, not real mysterious anymore, huh? It's this. Yay. That's it. We get so caught up in what's it mean and what about, he goes, well, it means this. You go, oh. So we now have final questions as we close out. What are the seven angels of the churches? That's a very, very valid question, I think. So guess what? I got options, (laughs) right? Because nobody knows. What are the seven angels of the churches? Angel is also the same word as messenger. So now we have to spin a couple different concepts. So here's your choices. What are the seven angels of the churches? You got four choices. Number one, human beings, the leaders of the local church. They are the ones that are given the task to convey the message of God. So write a letter to the leader of the church, send it to the messenger, and have him convey it to his congregation. Is that what it means? That's one guess. Number two, the postal delivery guys. Literally, guys are going to come, pick up the letters from you, and the seven will go out to their their churches and hand it off. Those messengers are the seven angels of the churches. Number three, specific and personal guardian angels of every church. You go, well, that doesn't even make sense. Well, he's drawing a lot from Daniel, and I don't know if you remember when Daniel talked with one of the angels, but the angel was fighting the prince of Greece. And he was detained, and there were battles, and there was territory, and there was this, all in this spirit realm. So is it possible that there's an angel assigned to each one of those seven churches, and the angel's job is to give them the proper information from God and to provide protection? Is that possible? Certainly possible. Or, number four, your option is, it is the ethos or spirit of the church, meaning Bridgeway has a groove to it. We all have one certain thing uh, or a collection that creates our general spirit, our personality of the church, right to that. Those are your choices. Which one is it? I don't know. But I do know one thing that I want to close with. God, when he described the church, he used a lampstand. What do we know about lampstands? What are they supposed to do? Give light. Who's the light of the world? Jesus Christ. When a lampstand ceases to give light, what do you do with it? Throw it away. The church of Ephesus, in the very first letter we're about to study next week, gets a warning. 
Repent, change your way, or I'm removing your lampstand. You're done. I would tell you that we have not only a church warning, but we have a personal warning as believers. The Bible says that we are to be salt and light of the world. When salt is no longer salty, it is what? Thrown out and trampled by men. So, my last challenge to you is this. In light of who Christ is, are we who we ought to be? You just saw a brand new picture of Jesus, did you not? You just saw a glorified Christ. You just saw that He is in control of all. You just saw that your job is to be light unto the world. In light of who He is, are we who we ought to be? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for today. Thank You, Lord, for this morning and allowing us to see the revelation alongside John. Thank you, Lord, for allowing John to write it down that we might be able to study this and see you as you are. As we see you, Lord, would you reveal yourself more and more to us that we might worship you rightly and appropriately and be filled with awe and glory and that we see in you, Lord, and that we might be able to respond to that with the deepest part of our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.